All right, good morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We've been walking through the book of Luke together. Luke chapter 11, starting in, uh, we're going to be starting in verse 37 in Luke chapter 11. Uh, first of all, Julie and Mackenzie, thank you so much for leading us into to worship this morning. And uh, also wanted to say happy birthday, Meredith, Tim, happy birthday. And Joy, too. Anybody else? Am I missing anybody else? Man, everybody's having birthdays. Alicia's birthday, too? Not really. <laughs> Scott put that on Facebook the other day, and everybody thought it was her birthday. I'm sure she thought that was hilarious. All right, Luke chapter 11. Uh, last week, just to give you some context, again, we've been walking through the book of Luke together for some time now, and last week, Jesus addressed something really important. He said, and he, he really, he challenged us and he, he warned us that we need to be careful. That was the one command. Last week, if you remember, there's one command that Jesus gave in that whole passage. He said, be careful what you look at. And he was talking about your spiritual eyes, that we need to be careful what we're looking at in our spiritual eyes. And we need to continually pray with a whole lot of passion that God would open up the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, to see the glory and the beauty of the gospel so we would see Christ for who He is. That's why we come here on Sunday mornings. For God to open up the eyes of our hearts so we can be in awe of who God is. We'd fall deeper in love with Him. And so that's why it's so important for us to gather together corporately. Today, He turns and He addresses a group of people who we've seen before, the Pharisees, and the lawyers, or, or what we also call them the scribes, and he recognizes in them that their heart is just dark. And so he gives them a very stern warning. He gives them six woes, okay? And he's like, whoa, don't do what you're doing. And the message is clear for us today. Don't be like them. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like these lawyers that have these just darkened, they have a spiritual blindness about them. But I want you to recognize, as, as stern as Jesus is in this passage, what I want you to feel is his love towards you. Okay, because if you have kids, you recognize this, and you know this, especially if you, if you have young kids, it seems like some days all we do is discipline Liam. Like all day long, we're just telling him, don't do this, don't do that, you don't burn yourself, don't jump off the cliff. I mean, you're constantly warning your children, because why? You love them, you're invested in them. And listen to me, no one is more invested in your life than Jesus Christ. No one has sacrificed more than Jesus Christ for you. And so when he is stern with you at times, that's his love for you. And that's what I want you to hear in this passage as we walk through these woes. And so there's six woes. Three are directed at the Pharisees. Three are directed towards the lawyers or the scribes. And so let's pray before we walk through these. Father, once again, I, I, I plead with you that your spirit would infiltrate our hearts Open our eyes to see your beauty and to see your glory. To change us. That we would leave here 
filled with joy in you and a passion to share the truth with others about your glory. I pray that we would also recognize the blind spots in our own hearts, that you would root out the idols and the pride that is in us, the inner Pharisee, the inner lawyer in, in all of us. We would take heed to these warnings that we might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, and so if you're taking notes, we're going to walk through these six, these six warnings, these six woes, and in each one of them, there's going to be a, a diagnostic question that I want you to ask yourself. And again, my hope is that as we ask these diagnostic questions, we would recognize those, the spiritual blindness in our own hearts, that we would recognize the tendency, because we've got the same tendencies as those Pharisees. To, to have spiritual blindness, to, to have pride and hypocrisy in our own lives. And so let's take heed to these, these warnings. And so we start out in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and so he went and he reclined at the table. And more than likely, we've seen this before, the Pharisees were probably trying to trap Jesus. This is, this is what they did. They would invite him over to try to get him to talk and say something that would just discount his ministry. Jesus recognizes that. So the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash bef before dinner. And Jesus would have known that the Pharisees expected him to wash his hands before a meal. Now, the Pharisees, th th this wasn't about hygiene for them. This was, they, they were hardcore legalists, and they, they not only wanted you to wash your hands, you had to wash them in a very specific way. The water had to drip a certain way, and it was very intricate in how they required people to wash their hands before a meal to stay ceremonially clean. And Jesus knew that by him not washing his hands, that was going to arouse their attention. And so he wasn't surprised when they were astonished by this. this. In fact, he uses their astonishment to bring down the hammer. Because he knows their hearts. He knows their hearts. And so we come to the first woe. Verse 39, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup into the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, you did you not, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, God knows your heart. You can't hide from him. But give as alms those things that are within you, and behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, look, if you're going to give something away, because he's about to talk about giving and, and their heart's behind it, but you look, if you're going to give something away, give the greed that's in your heart. Get rid of that. Get rid of the wickedness in your heart. And then the first woe. But... Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so the first woe is he's addressing a wrong heart in their, in their giving. And so again, the Pharisees were extreme legalists. Uh, this is why they were so astonished when Jesus didn't wash his hands the correct way. It wasn't about 
cleanliness. It wasn't, it wasn't about hygiene. It was about ceremonial rituals. And so tithing, they were just as meticulous about their tithing. In fact, they, would, they said, okay, a tithe is 10%, so I'm going to give 10% of everything that I have. They would literally count the number of mint leaves that they had, and every 10 that they have, they would give one to the Lord. And Jesus even mentions things like rue and, and other herbs, things that weren't even part of their law that they would still give. But the, here's the thing. They were so meticulous about tithing, not because they cared about loving God and giving something to God. It was because they were show-offs. They wanted everybody to see their tithing. They wanted everybody to see, look how good I am. Look how much I'm giving to the Lord. I give everything to Him. I'm so meticulous about it. And Jesus recognized it. And so God's not impressed with their giving because their heart is in the wrong place. Our giving should come from hearts that are filled with a joy and a love for God, that they they overflow with generosity. And so the first diagnostic question that we should ask ourselves is, is what motivates your giving? What motivates your giving? Do you give because you feel obligated to give? Do you give because you're just trying to feel better about yourself and feel better that you're better than other people? Or maybe a different question you should ask, it's more relevant for maybe some of you, is, okay, what motivates you not giving? Do you not give because you feel like you can't trust God's promise to provide for you? Do you not give because you feel like it's your money rather than God's money? That's what the Bible teaches, that we're stewards of God's money. And so what, what motivates your, your not giving? See, if we want to continue to, to grow in, in our mission as a church and stay financially healthy, it doesn't come from people feeling obligated to, to give. It comes from a church that have a, a group of people that have hearts that are overflowing in joy for Christ. That they're overflowing in love for Christ and love for other people. And because of that, that overflow ends up in Hearts that are just generous, that they're giving, not just to the box, but to people in need that they see right next to them. A healthy heart is a, is a generous heart. And so the question is, okay, how do we cultivate a heart like that? And so as I've thought, and, and this is not directly in the text here, but we see this throughout Scripture. This is something we talk about often. And as I just kind of meditated on this passage over the next or last few days, I thought of this triangle, and there's really, if you want to cultivate a, a healthy heart, a heart that's filled with joy and, and a passion for Christ, there's really three foundational things that you need to focus on. And none of this is, if you've been in church, none of this should be new, but prayer is foundational, right? You've got to have a heart that is constantly calling God to open up the eyes of your heart to see the beauty and the treasure of who Christ is. You also need, you need Bible intake. You need to know the Bible. You need to study the Bible. You need to meditate on the Bible. And then also you need community. Intentional community. I have to excuse my handwriting. And I'm going to be like a broken record today, just referring back to this over and over and over. But it's like a three-legged stool. You need all three of these things. If you want to have a healthy heart, if you only have prayer and community, but you're not 
guided by Scripture. Your prayers are going to be off the deep end. And in your study, I mean, you're just going to be all over the place. If you have Bible in community, but you, you don't have prayer, you're not calling on the Spirit to change you then you, you might gain a whole lot of knowledge with each other, but your pride is elevated. If you've got Bible and prayer but no community, you're not investing in other people, and you're not pouring into their hearts, you're not doing what God has called you to do. And so this is like a three-legged stool. Without all three legs, it's going to fall over. So this is what creates a healthy heart. This is what creates a generous heart. And so a good question to ask ourselves, what's motivating our giving? Do we have a, do we have a generous heart that is from a, we're giving out of a heart that is just filled and overflowing with the love and joy of Christ. The Pharisees did not have that. All right, we move on to the woe number two, which is a, he's addressing a heart that's seeking approval in the wrong places. Woe to you, verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplace. And so, again, the Pharisees, they loved social status. They loved having the best seats in the synagogues that were up front and actually faced the rest of the congregation. They loved to be seen by others. They loved to go into the marketplace where some of their fans would greet them with these long, elaborate greetings. They loved to be known they love to be loved by others. They love to, to, to find their approval in other, other people. And if we're honest, all of us have that same heart in us, at least at some level. We desire, th this is why at, at times we, uh, we drive for success. This is at times why we spend an hour in front of the mirror before we go out or why sometimes we don't go, go out at all because we're worried about what other people might think about us. This is why some people look at like a missional community or a small group as just really intimidating. This is why we, we struggle building relationships and going deep with people, letting them know all the ins and outs of our, our hearts, being transparent. Because we, we all struggle with seeking approval from the wrong places like the, like the Pharisees. And so the diagnostic question is, whose approval do you crave? Whose approval do you crave? Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You see, the, the, finding your approval in other people, fi finding your looking for praise from other people, it, it's kind of like a drug, right? Where, yeah, you get a little, a little high, but that high doesn't last, and you need to constantly feed that addiction. You, you need another hit. You need to find another hit sometime soon because it, it, it disappears very quickly. In, in the midst, when we're doing that, when we're settling for the praise of other people, we're essentially, we're, we're exchanging a reward that's supposed to come from heaven with a reward that is coming from earth. We're, we're satisfied with the scraps off the floor when we could be feasting at the table with God, if we seek His approval. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah warned the Israelites, they were doing the same thing. He said, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked by utterly, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out 
cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Seeking out the approval of other people is, is like having a cistern that can't hold water. You're constantly going to need more. You're, it's never going to satisfy. And so we should be asking the question, how do we kill the desire for human approval? Right here, okay? It all goes back to this. It's filling your heart so much with prayer and Bible and community that it fills you with joy and satisfaction in living water in Christ. And so we should ask the question, the diagnostic question, whose approval am I craving? A healthy heart is fully satisfied by finding their approval in Christ. And it frees you not to worry about what other people are thinking. All right, woe number three. Woe number three. Look at verse 44. It says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And so the Pharisees had a heart that com- contaminated other people with death. In, in Jewish culture, if you touched something that was dead, or if you touched a grave, you became unclean, ceremonially unclean, and you had to go through a whole process to become clean again. You were ostracized from the general community. You didn't want to be unclean. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and it's ironic because they were so focused on being clean. And Jesus is saying, look, you make everybody else unclean. And they don't even realize it. You're like unmarked graves. People are walking and touching you and don't even realize they're becoming unclean just by being around you because people look up to you. They don't see your flaws. But Jesus saw their heart. It's like he calls, that's why he calls the Pharisees, like you're like blind people leading blind people. You're like the blind leading the blind. You're both going to fall into a pit. And so the diagnostic question that we should ask ourselves is, okay, what are you contaminating other people with? Okay, what what are you contaminating others with? Because your life is going to be contagious. Okay, we were wired to be contagious. We're wired to be relational. Think about the people that you're, that look up to you right now. Maybe your kids, maybe the people you teach. Think about the people that look up to you. What are they catching from you? What are they catching? Are they catching life from you? Or are they catching death from you? We're designed as relational beings. God is a relational being. We're designed as relational beings, which means we're also designed to be influenced by one another and to influence one another. That's why in the church we're given spiritual gifts. If you're a believer, you're given spiritual gifts. Why? To be able to build up the church, to encourage one another. Uh, I think about the gift of hospitality. I mean, if you walk into somebody's house a believer's house who obviously has the gift of hospitality. It's not about how clean their house looks or, or, or how meticulous that they've got everything organized. That, that's not the gift of hospitality. The gift of hospitality, you walk in there, you just feel welcomed and loved. And you walk away feeling filled because you've been part of a, a community that loves you and gives you grace. That's the gift of hospitality. That's how we build one another up. 
And so you're given spiritual gifts. Think about the, the gifts of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness, self-control. Those, things, those gifts, the, those, uh, the gifts of the Spirit and the, the fruits of the Spirit, they don't make a whole lot of sense in isolation by yourself. In fact, in Galatians 5, when Paul is talking about the fruits of the Spirit, Right before that, he talks about how he summarizes the law by saying we ought to love our neighbors as ourselves. And right after that, at the beginning of chapter 6, is the passage about how we ought to bear one another's burdens. It's in the context of community that the fruits of the Spirit exist. Love and joy and peace and patience, all of those things are meant to be contagious. You were made to be contagious. And so a healthy heart contaminates other people with life. How does that happen? Here. Okay, it's, it's not, if we cut out community, you might be really smart with the Bible, you might be filled with the Spirit, but you're not, you're not doing what you're called to do and be contagious with those things. Fill others with those things, impact others. What are you contaminating others with? All right, we go to verse 45, which is kind of a transition verse for us. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And so, again, the, the lawyers are these scribes. When we say lawyer, we, it, it, back then it's a different type of lawyer. These were the people that were experts in the Old Testament law. These are the people that, that love to make laws on top of laws. The Pharisees like to keep the laws. The, 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 the scribes, they were the ones that kind of created all these extra laws to stop them from breaking the original laws. And so the Pharisees and the, the scribes were often put together. Some of the, the Pharisees were also scribes. And so this, this lawyer <laughs> looks at Jesus and uh, is like, look, you, you insult us also. And I love Jesus' response. He's basically like, you're right. That was kind of my intent. Okay, let me tell you some woes too. He's going to wish he didn't say that, I think. Look at woe number four. And in woe number four, Jesus is dealing directly at the lawyers now, and he's dealing with their heart that loved to burden other people with the law. And so we pick up in verse 46. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and yourselves, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so the scribes, again, like the Pharisees, they were extreme legalists. In fact, we talked about they liked to make laws on top of laws. They had 6,000 of them. In fact, just for, so that they would prevent people from breaking the law of the, don't break the Sabbath. Okay? And so they had 39 categories of laws underneath that law and numerous sub-laws to tell you exactly what you could and you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. It was supposed to be a day of rest. And so you could only pick certain things up and you could, if they weighed a certain amount, and if you picked them up twice, you're in trouble. I mean, it was, nobody could follow those rules. It was impossible. There were, the average person, there was no way they could follow all those rules. But see, their motivation with it was not to, there, there's no compassion in their hearts with it. They didn't help other people follow the rules. They looked down on you when you didn't follow the rules. It was just setting them up to make themselves look awesome and everybody else look terrible. That was their goal in making all of those rules. 
And so Jesus sees this, of course, and he says, look, you put all these burdens, but you don't, you don't help anybody. And so diagnostic question for your own heart, are, are God's laws a heavy burden to you? Because if they're a heavy burden to you, you're going to make them a heavy burden to other people also with your legalism. I want you to think about how different Jesus was from these lawyers. It's not that Jesus didn't have expectations. He said, pick up your cross and follow me, right? But all the expectations that Jesus puts on us, he also says, I'm going to help you with them. I'm not going to leave you by yourselves. This isn't, in fact, he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so he gives you expectations, but then he says, look, I will help you. I will empower you with my spirit to fulfill those expectations. And when you mess up, you don't need to feel guilty. You don't need to, you don't need to have shame in your life because I've taken it all away on the cross. And so my burdens are not heavy. So he gives you a burden, but it's like light as a feather because he helps you with it. And so by faith, we look to Christ to help us bear the burden. This is why Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, he's not talking about running faster or jumping higher there. He's talking about being content in all situations because he knows the secret of contentment is being able to rest in Christ, believing that Christ has taken away the burden of the law. That he's taken away the guilt and the shame and has, has empowered him to be able to, to be victorious against sin. And so a, a healthy heart is free. A healthy heart is light. I, re, I remember when the gospel first became significant to me. It, was, it felt like just this huge burden off of my back because I recognized what Jesus was doing as he forgave my sins and he took away the guilt and the shame. And I recognized that me living to try to impress God was not how to be saved. That salvation comes through faith and trusting in what Christ, his work did on the cross, saves us. And ironically, what I found then is I wanted to be obedient then. I wanted to work and to to be righteous, but not to impress God, but because God impressed me and had done so much for me and has shown so much love for me. And again, a healthy heart that is free and light, it's cultivated through this. Well, number five, he addresses a heart that handles the word of God poorly. Pick up in verse 47. Woe to you, again, talking to the lawyers, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundations of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And so the scribes 
we're supposed to be the guardians of the Word of God. They were called to, to protect it. And so of all the people, they should have known better. And so Jesus' accusation here would have cut them to the heart because he was saying basically, look, not only have you not done your job, you of all people should have known better because you've got the, the history of all the prophets before you. And not only that, you have heard a better prophetic word. You've got the Messiah before you, and yet you still don't listen. You're worse than your fathers. In fact, all of the, the blood of all the prophets that they killed is on you. You're just as guilty as them. I mean, I'm imagining that that, uh, that lawyer that kind of piped up is, is wishing that he never did at this point. So here's the di- diagnostic question for us today. How careful do you handle the Word of God? How careful do you handle the Word of God? If their responsibility was great, think about how much we have a responsibility now that we have the full canon of Scripture before us. Do you look to God's Word as your final authority? Do you look to God's Word to teach your kids? Because if you're not teaching them, YouTube will. Are you looking to God's Word to teach them authority? When you discipline your kids, are you, are you pointing to them to the gospel or are you just teaching them how to behave correctly? Are you teaching them moralism or are you teaching about the gospel of grace that's going to lead them to salvation? The Bible should be governing your life more and more as you grow as a Christian. The Bible is not some textbook. It's not a list of rules. It's not a historical simply a historical text, and it it does give you historical information, but it's the very Word of God. Jesus described it as fresh bread. David said it's it's a lamp unto our feet, that it's sweeter than honey, that it's desired more than, should be desired more than fine gold. The author of Hebrews says that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. We, We ought to delight in the Word of God, meditating on it day and night, studying it so that we know how to respond, so that we're prepared in season and out to give a defense. A healthy heart treasures the Word of God and handles it with great care. All right, woe number six. Pick up in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And so because they did not handle the word of God carefully, and instead, of they, instead they, they used it for their own purposes to, to gain popularity and, and really to control other people, they hindered other people from knowing the truth. The, they had gotten so caught up in traditions and rules, they lost what was most important. 
the truth of the gospel that would lead people to salvation. And so the question we should ask ourselves is, are you teaching other people the truth? Are you teaching other people the truth? Jesus calls us to be disciple makers. That's the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples. We are all called to make disciples. This is not a calling just for professional Christians. This is something we're all called to do. So if we're all called to make disciples, that means we are all called to teach at some level. We are all called to teach. We're all called to, to pour into somebody. So who are you teaching right now? Who are you pouring into? And I pray that we would take this seriously. I pray that for those of you that, are, are, that volunteer for Mercy Kids or, or with, our, with our students, that when it's your turn, you would spend the week reading the scripture that you're about to teach those kids, that you would handle the word of God carefully. Because when you go in there, you're not talking to them about your opinion. You're not teaching them morals. You're teaching them the gospel, the truth that will lead to salvation. A healthy heart loves to spread the truth because it's overflowing with the joy of Christ. And again, how does that happen? you got a three-pegged stool, and it needs all three. Final two verses, we'll end on this. As, uh, starting in verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him saying, catch him in something that he might say. Again, they were, they were just waiting for him to say something that might discredit his ministry. They were jealous of his following. And if we're not careful, while we may not try to discredit Jesus, inside of all of us, there's an inner lawyer that may come out, especially when we feel the stern voice of Jesus giving us a warning. It's very easy for us to have this inner lawyer, this inner Pharisee that starts to justify ourselves and our, our behavior and why we're not doing this. It's very easy for us to become defensive, defensive in those moments. And so let me challenge you today. As we move into a, a time of communion, I want you to look back through those. In fact, I'd like us to, to keep those six diagnostic questions up on the screen while we're heading into communion. And I want you to think through those diagnostic questions and those woes and really ask God and pray, one, that God would open the eyes of your heart to see the beauty and the love of Christ in these woes, but also that he would help you root out the idols and ask God, okay, what do, what do I need to respond? How do I need to respond to your word today? What are you calling me to do? If you need prayer, I'll be in the back. If you've got questions about salvation, about church membership or baptism or, or anything else about what we've talked today, don't leave today until you get those questions answered. As we move into a time of communion, this is for believers. This is a time for us to be reminded of what Christ has done for us, his sacrifice on the cross, the juice represents his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins, that he paid the penalty that we deserved on the cross. The bread represents his body. You'll dip the bread into the juice. You'll go back to your seats and spend some time alone 
with Christ. It's also a time for us to give generously. If you're a visitor, don't feel obligated. And this is also a time to once again evaluate our hearts, to confess our sins to God. And once everybody's had a chance to go through the line, we'll, we'll stand together and we're going to worship together because like Scott said earlier in his prayer, he is worthy of our worship. And even as he speaks sternly in these passages, I hope you feel his love in them also. Let's pray. Father, once again we come to you after reading your word. I pray that you would help us to respond appropriately to your warnings. I pray that you would again open our eyes to see your love and your beauty in this passage and that you would help us heed these warnings, that we would take them seriously and you would help us to respond appropriately, make it clear what we ought to do or think differently because of your word. Change our hearts, fill our hearts with your presence that we might know you better and send us out from here delighting in you, desiring to let others know the truth and the beauty of the gospel. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as God is calling you to respond. Mm-hmm.